Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 1380. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now, we've... uh, been discussing a lot of uh, very important cultural issues over the past couple of weeks, and one of the things that that I hear the most from Christians as I travel uh, around Canada speaking on these issues is, is threats to religious liberty. And we used to be able to ignore threats to religious liberty because they didn't happen very often here in Canada. You had the human rights tribunals that would occasionally make a ruling, but we had people fighting the human rights tribunals and doing so quite successfully. Uh, Same thing in the States. Occasionally there was an instance of government overreach, but not something that we found uh, so concerning as to see a trend. But just in the last couple of years, after the, the rise of gay marriage, both in Canada and the United States, we've seen threats to religious liberty basically pop up everywhere because what our society is in the midst of deciding is whether we will be governed by the principles of the sexual revolution and individualism in its most extreme form or whether we will be governed by the principles of Christianity because of course yes we both have constitutions Uh, Canada has a charter of rights and freedoms uh, but at the end of the day it's human beings interpreting those documents and especially as we've seen with the legalization of abortion and gay marriage uh, in Canada now euthanasia these documents can be more or less read however the people reading them want to uh, which is extremely concerning because We're trashing uh, definitions that are thousands of years old. We're ignoring the sanctity of life. And at the same time, our societies are embarking on a project where they quite viciously persecute all those who disagree with this. And a lot of people will say it's an exaggeration to use the word persecution. I know what you mean. Peter Hitchens said this to me during one of our interviews, that this is not persecution, especially when you contrast it with the very real persecution taking place against Christians in Iraq and Syria by uh, the medieval butchers of ISIS and in many other places around the world. But at the same time, we're seeing uh, Christians being forced into the margins of society. Uh, not completely successfully yet, but certainly uh, that's the end game. And I wrote about this uh, in a column some time ago uh, that I think that what's happening here in the West is very similar to what happened in communist Europe, in places like uh, Hungary, where they were far too clever, the communists, to just outright make Christianity illegal. But what they did was they attached a very, very high cost to being Christian. I was actually in Budapest last year, and we were doing a bit of a tour of the city, and the tour guide mentioned that uh, not until communism was virtually over was she able to attend university, and she was the first member of her family to be able to attend university because she was baptized as a Christian. And the Hungarian communists permitted you to get baptized as a Christian. They permitted you to attend church. They permitted you uh, to live a Christian life. But if you were baptized Christian, you weren't allowed access, uh, for example, to universities, which essentially meant that you had a choice. You could be a Christian or you could be successful, as my Budapest tour guide put it. And this is what we're seeing unfold 
across uh, North America and Canada and the United States. There's the famous example, of course, of, of Mozilla CEO Brandon Icke, who made a donation uh, to the Prop 8 campaign to preserve marriage as between one man and one woman, at a time, by the way, uh, when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were both supposedly anti-gay marriage as well, and he got driven out of his job. Uh, we see there being increasingly stiff, stiff penalties for disagreeing with gay marriage, and these penalties often involve uh, fines that are so large they force bankruptcy, the loss of businesses, and in here in Canada there are policies being passed on every level that essentially force Christians out of the public square. So traditionally elite professions, for example, like uh, doctors and lawyers. Well, with lawyers, we have a case currently winding its way through various court systems that says that Trinity Western University, which is a Christian evangelical university that has all of its students sign a, a lifestyle covenant, that they could not certify law students because they are, quote-unquote, homophobic. Because, of course, uh, the homosexual lifestyle is in contradiction with Christian teaching, and Trinity Western is a Christian university. In other words, uh, they're forcing Christian law students, would-be Christian lawyers, out of that profession. They're essentially creating a sexual revolutionary litmus test for who gets to practice law and who doesn't. And that litmus test is whether or not you approve of uh, same-sex marriage. Now, the same thing is happening in the medical community, where there's uh, policies being passed that would force doctors to uh, refer patients for abortions and now for euthanasia. And if you don't want to do that, you can't practice medicine or you'll be fined. Now, this, of course, is extremely worrisome because Christian doctors will not allow themselves to be complicit with these types of things. And now it's a very strong possibility that they could be forced to. So I wanted to have a discussion today about religious liberty, and there was no better person to call than Dr. Robert P. George. Now, Anybody who's in the pro-life community will probably have heard of him. He's a, a McCormick professor of jurisprudence at Princeton University, and he's one of the top legal scholars in North America. He's also a senior fellow at the Witherspoon Institute, whose research on things like pornography is quite fantastic. And he was named by the New York Times in 2009 as one of uh, the leading Christian thinkers of our day, and I would have to agree with that. His academic resume alone is impressive. He went to Swarthmore College, Harvard Law School, Harvard Divinity School, and Oxford uh, University. And uh, he was the author of things like the Manhattan Declaration, and he's been at the forefront of the movement to defend religious liberty, and he's probably the Christian movement's heaviest hitting intellectual. So uh, he joined me uh, from Princeton to talk about the state of religious liberty in the West and what we could do about it. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. To start off a discussion on how ethics and politics intersect, you recently penned a column uh, with two others defending Marco Rubio's opposition to abortion on scientific premises. And this is one of the first times it seems a, a politician has really robustly defended the pro-life position on uh, scientific views. Would he be your presidential preference? Uh, I'm not endorsing a candidate. I think very highly of uh, Marco Rubio. I also think highly of several of the other uh, candidates. Uh, but when Marco Rubio came under uh, criticism, 
uh, for stating uh, a scientific truth, and not only a scientific truth, but a demonstrable, manifest scientific truth, that is, the life of a new human being uh, begins at conception. When he came in for criticism, uh, I stepped forward with my uh, friend and co-author, uh, Patrick Lee, simply to point out the uh, fact that Rubio was absolutely right on the science. And it's quite interesting because it may surprise some to know that you were at one point in your career a Democrat. What made you switch parties? Well, the uh, Democratic Party's robust embrace starting in 1972 of uh, the abortion license seemed to me to be a betrayal of everything that the Democratic Party claimed to stand for, uh, especially the idea that we should protect the weakest, uh, most vulnerable members of society the poor, the handicapped. One would certainly have thought the innocent child in the womb. So that betrayal uh, certainly um, caused me to rethink my own allegiance to the party of my youth, to the party of my parents and grandparents. My grandfathers had been coal miners, union men, uh, classic Democrats, great supporters of uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But when the party decided to embrace abortion, and uh, with it really the entire um, sort of secular progressive lifestyle liberal agenda, uh, that made me uh, stop and think. Uh, at the same time, I saw the um, the programs that had been put into place in my own native Appalachia. I'm from, from West Virginia, coal mining country. The programs that had been put in place by Lyndon Johnson, the Great Society uh, programs that were meant in good faith, though, with with great intentions to help people, when I saw them failing, and not only failing, but often producing uh, the very opposite of the results that uh, they were designed to produce, I began to rethink that whole uh, approach uh, to helping uh, those in need. Uh, I began to realize that large governmental bureaucratic programs were not the answer. What we needed to do, really, was to reinvigorate the institutions of civil society, the family, the church, the civic association, the various groups, what Burke called the little platoons, who really deliver the most fundamental health, education, and welfare services. And the Republican Party, at the same time, was beginning to go down that road under the influence of people like Irving Kristol, the um, public interest, the journal, the, the public interest that Crystal uh, edited. Mm -hmm. uh, so I gradually found myself moving away from the Democrats. For a long time, uh, I simply was an independent. I was affiliated with neither party. And then about the uh, late 90s or early 2000s, I went ahead and took the plunge and became a registered Republican. Well, and it seems like the divide between the parties is, is ever-growing, and I wanted to start off by looking at what's going on in the United States, because here in Canada, we we began uh, the journey of abolishing religious liberty, but it seems to have happened uh, extraordinarily fast uh, in your country, and, and one of the discussions that's been been happening uh, around abortion and Planned Parenthood uh, in, in this recent election cycle, due to the work of David Daleiden, has a course, attracted the attention of people who want to silence him. Uh, what did you make of, of, of David Daleiden's indictment? Uh, well, I have not uh, read, but I intend to, uh, to learn as much as I can about the presentation that was made by the prosecutors to the grand jury uh, that um, handed down the indictment of uh, Daleiden and one of his associates. So I don't want to uh, say anything specifically about this case until mm -hmm. I've informed myself as to what the prosecutor had uh, when he uh, when he went to the grand jury seeking the indictment. I don't think I should prejudge the case, not knowing uh, the facts. I do know that David uh, Daleiden uh, 
sought, uh, whether his means were uh, sound or not, whether, uh, in fact, they were lawful or not, uh, is something we can debate. But certainly his intention was a good one, which is to expose what was actually going on uh, in Planned Parenthood clinics, that is, the butchery of unborn children. And honestly, to tell the truth, you know, not to beat around the bush, the selling you can you can dress it up in other language, but it's really the selling of uh, of body parts of unborn babies. Uh, and he did expose that. Uh, those Planned Parenthood videos had a tremendous impact uh, here in the United States because a lot of people didn't really know what happened uh, in abortions or only had a notional sense of what happened in abortions. Mm-hmm. The videos made very clear uh, what happened in abortions, and you could see the callous attitude toward human life of the Planned Parenthood officials uh, who were caught on tape uh, in the uh, in the video sting. Um, so that's what I can say for now about the Daleiden case, but I'll be happy to talk with you again, if you like, once I've had a chance to gather all the facts uh, about what the prosecutor, in fact, had uh, under the relevant law, Texas law. Yes, uh, certainly, and it, it's interesting because we're seeing the law being used as a bludgeon increasingly. I don't know how much you follow developments on this side of the border, but uh, we've now seen uh, the province of Alberta just ban the terms mother and father. We had the provincial government of Alberta demand that transgender students, uh, regardless of whether or not they had transitioned, etc., simply based on their say-so, be allowed access to any bathrooms that they want, including in private Christian schools and Catholic schools. Uh, we had uh, a, a new sex education overhaul in the province of Ontario, and uh, there was, to a large degree, no opt-out option for parents who objected to the material being taught there. And you've dedicated your recent career to defending religious liberty with the Manhattan Declaration and other things. What's your take right now on the state of religious liberty in the West, and why have things seemed to reverse so quickly in the last 10 years or so? I don't know the answer to the last question, why things seem to have reversed uh, so quickly. Uh, but I uh, have a sense of what's going on in places like Canada, and I fear that uh, it could be replicated in the United States, although we do have a strong movement here to, uh, to resist it. Uh, what has happened in Canada, as best I can tell as an observer of these things, is that uh, uh, the Canadian cultural left has succeeded in uh, establishing uh, secular liberalism or secular progressivism as the established religion uh, of the country. Uh, and there's a powerful uh, effort being made by uh, the uh, representatives of the establishment of religion who have control of the apparatus of government, uh, both centrally and in some of the provinces. There's an effort to disempower any groups that would resist the precepts of the established religion, whether it comes to abortion or euthanasia or so-called transgenderism, uh, whatever it is. Religious mm-hmm. liberty has to be stamped out. Uh, so that there can be no resistance, no heresy, no dissent uh, from the dogmas of the uh, of the established faith. So, to me, that's uh, that's the picture in Canada right now, and I very much regret it because I think Canada is a great nation, uh, and it's an important nation, uh, small in population, uh, but a very important uh, nation. And so, I would like to see reestablished uh, in Canada uh, robust religious liberty. And in fact, uh, I, I hope that the day will come when secular progressivism is overthrown as the established religion in uh, Canada, and Canada returns to basic sound uh, moral principles, the sanctity of human life in all stages and conditions, uh, the dignity of marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife, and respect for religious liberty and other fundamental values. 
Oh, and it's interesting though because we've been we've been referencing law used ag- against people that we never would have thought it would be used against. And I'm thinking of, of one couple in particular, these uh, Christian bakers who are fined $135,000 for mental rape, which is a a seemingly fictitious, just invented crime. And uh, this is this is happening south of the border. What do you make of the developments uh, that are taking place, especially when they seem on the face to be so absurd? Uh, they are absurd, uh, and we're fighting them uh, very hard uh, down here. Uh, often it's a state-by-state state battle, but we're hoping to uh, enact at the federal level a, uh, a First Amendment Defense Act, uh, which would restore uh, religious freedom in the robust sense for people like those bakers uh, who, uh, as a matter of conscience, cannot participate in or provide their artistic or other uh, uh, services. Uh, to ceremonies that uh, offend their uh, moral convictions. Um, We also want to pass legislation in the states uh, to protect uh, those victims and other uh, potential victims. Uh, It's a big fight, but uh, I'm optimistic and hopeful uh, that we're going to win this fight uh, in the end. What do you make of of this sort of departure on the left from saying we need to live and let live, uh, you know, gay people want to get married, they don't want anything else, just leave us alone to love each other as we see fit and we'll leave you alone, to this very distinct move, uh, and, and people are saying this on, on Slate.com, on all sorts of sort of mainline left publications, that religious liberty doesn't even exist, you know, where Andrew Sullivan is getting more or less booed at conferences in which he advocates for the idea of religious liberty. It seems like that was almost a, a convenient farce to use prior to the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage, and was abandoned immediately afterwards. Uh, they never meant it. They never meant live and let live. Right. They want to establish the, the religion here in the United States. It's now been established in Canada and in some uh, European uh, countries, the religion of secular liberalism. And, you know, religions, uh, even good religions, uh, can have their very bad uh, moments, can, uh, can become uh, tyrannical. Uh, they can conduct inquisitions uh, as the Catholic Church. I myself am a Catholic, but, you know, conducted inquisitions uh, to try to stamp out uh, dissent. Uh, and you 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 see uh, liberal secularism uh, doing exactly that, conducting inquisitions to stamp out uh, dissent. Down here, even in the cultural sphere, quite apart from the legal one, Brendan Eich, uh, who was uh, one of the great uh, uh, leaders uh, of the tech industry, um, very brilliant uh, man, uh, denied a position as the head of Mozilla. Uh, the the uh, software uh, people, mm-hmm. uh, because he favored and had contributed to a referendum in support of marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife. So suddenly he became a pariah. He became intolerable. Uh, his career had to be destroyed. His reputation had to be uh, ruined. Uh, that's how inquisitions work. And you wrote recently for First Things, which is a, a, a journal that I, I read very frequently, and, and I find that they have some of the most compelling uh, work that is available online today and in print. Uh, but you, you seem to have a lot of hope 40, uh, 40-some years after Roe v. Wade uh, for the pro-life movement in your country. And I know the pro-life movement in this country is experiencing uh, a renaissance of, of young people who have grown up with legal abortion as the reality and are, are now saying no to the status quo and are creating a movement the likes of which hasn't been seen in several decades. Why are you so optimistic about what's happening uh, south of the border? Well, precisely because I do see young people flooding in uh, to the pro-life movement. Uh, these are 
uh, so-called children of choice. Uh, these are these are young men and women who grew up in the age of abortion. Down here, we call it the age of Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could have been aborted. In some cases, their brothers and sisters were aborted. But uh, we now have sonography. Uh, they know, as everyone knows, that uh, the entity that is destroyed in abortion is not a, a potato uh, or a stalk of broccoli uh, or some subhuman uh, animal creature. Uh, rather, it's a living member of the species Homo sapiens, a human being in the early stages of his or her uh, development. Uh, they realize, uh, so many young people, not all certainly, but, but many, many young people, uh, realize that, uh, that abortion is just the violent killing of innocent human beings, and it ought not to be tolerated, and it ought to be, ought not to be uh, accepted. So at the Great March for Life, which we hold on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade every year, January 22nd in Washington, uh, D.C. at the March for Life, you see thousands and thousands and thousands of high school students, of college students, of uh, young men and women in the beginning of their uh, professional uh, careers out there uh, marching uh, for the sanctity of human life, demanding the reversal of Roe versus Wade, um, pleading for the protection uh, of the child in the womb. Well, how can you not be hopeful and optimistic when you when you see that? Well, and, and you've written a lot on the intersection of ethics and politics, and, and I have to ask, because one of the uh, much-talked-about phenomenon of this particular election cycle, of course, is, is the rise of Donald Trump, who, from a, a Christian perspective, is somebody on his third marriage. He, uh, I had a pro-lifer from the United States stay at my house this summer, and he remembers protesting Planned Parenthood galas uh, hosted by Donald Trump in New York City, but he claims to have recently become pro-life. But by and large, there seems to be a lot of people who are supporting him in spite of, of a record that does not look very good uh, for people of our disposition. What do you make of this? Well, uh, he's tapping into uh, anger. Uh, he's tapping into a kind of uh, resentment of the political correctness that uh, has uh, manifested itself in, in the elite culture uh, here in the United States. Uh, people thrill to see him or hear him breaching the norms of political uh, correctness, uh, standing up uh, for what they uh, uh, believe in um, or say they believe in or what he says he believes in. (laughs) Uh, So uh, I think that resentment uh, at the failures of uh, the elites uh, in both parties, really, uh, that resentment's what's fueling the success of the uh, of the Trump campaign. It certainly has come as a surprise to me. I think it's come as a surprise to uh, to most uh, commentators. But there's a strong anti-elitism uh, down here. I don't know if you have it growing in your country, but a strong anti-elitism in a sense that the elites have really failed, and that they're simply a self-aggrandizing, puffed-up uh, class that needs to be taken down. And Donald Trump has stepped forward to uh, to take them down. Which is ironic, considering one would think a, a billionaire fat cat tycoon would be the very definition of an elitist. Yeah, he would. But he's made he's made a virtue of that. You know, he boasts about uh, his great wealth, and of course, uh, many people say, "Well, uh, he uh, he uh, uh, is a guy who is uh, so rich that he can speak his mind, he can speak the truth out loud, and doesn't have to doesn't have to worry about his own future." So he's uh, he's turned what uh, you would have thought, and in Romney's case certainly was a disadvantage, that is being rich, uh, into an advantage. Uh, Mitt Romney was accused of being out of touch with ordinary people because he's rich. 
But Trump has found a way, and this much is true, love him or hate him, he's found a way uh, to uh, connect uh, with ordinary people who really do feel as though he's on their side. He's representing their interests. He's saying what they would like to say and what they think needs to be said. Right. And it's interesting because one would think that at this particular point in history where religious liberty is so threatened and where uh, with the right candidate it seems very conceivable that Hillary Clinton could be beaten and that Roe v. Wade could be overturned, that we would be flocking to to this sort of a person. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you is because you do seem very optimistic about what's going on in the United States, and I wanted to, to just ask you which way you think the cultural tides are flowing, because uh, you know across the pond you have commentators like Peter Hitchens, who more or less says that his career now is 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 writing an obituary for for, for Great Britain and the United Kingdom and religious liberty, and, and you have a lot of commentators uh, who are more or less slumping into this sort of nihilism. Uh, you know, Mark Stein is another one who says, you know, we'll be arguing about transgender bathrooms until the Ayatollahs nuke us kind of thing. Uh, but you don't, I, I don't see that sort of malaise in any of your writing. So what gives you the optimism? Well, uh, Peter is an old friend of mine, Peter Hitchens. Uh, he and his wife uh, lived next door to me and my wife when, when we were uh, young, just starting out uh, <laughs> in Oxford. I was finishing up my uh, DPhil and he was a young uh, journalist uh, at the time, so uh, we had many conversations. Uh, he was on the left in those days and uh, had not yet become a, become a Christian, so he's made a long journey. Uh, but even then, uh, it was easy to see uh, the brilliance uh, in him that you, uh, that you see now. Uh, well, um, I don't think Peter or Mark spends a lot of time uh, teaching young people as I do. Right. Um, and gosh, uh, when I see young people uh, in my classes and emerging uh, from uh, the university here at Princeton, like Sharif Girgis and Ryan Anderson and Melissa Muskella and uh, Danielle Mark and uh, Joelle Alicia, uh, some of these names will be known to you, some perhaps mm-hmm. not known to you. But when I see these just enormous numbers of these young, brave, brilliant, dedicated, pro-life pro-marriage, pro-religious liberty people, when I see the, the sheer numbers and the brilliance and the courage, well, how can you not be lifted up uh, in hope and in, and in confidence? I mean, these people are willing to take on the culture, and they know how to do it. They are armed. They are armed with arguments, with, with critical thinking abilities, with knowledge, and they're dedicated. They, they won't be bought off, and they won't be intimidated. I see this all the time. It's just inspiring for me. Just to, to close it off, then, what's, what's sort of one incident that's happened recently for you of that type of description? What's one really uh, uplifting experience you've had that gave you a renewed hope for our culture going forward? Uh, well, one experience I've had recently is bringing together uh, Christian and Jewish uh, young people, devout people on both sides of the uh, Christian-Jewish uh, divide, Uh, to discuss their uh, shared uh, convictions, especially their moral convictions, uh, to engage with each other, to learn from each other, uh, to learn about each other's uh, traditions, uh, and to stand together uh, in the in the great cultural struggles that we're uh, we're facing, it was a very inspiring thing uh, thing to watch. And I see these friendships developing across the historic lines of religious d- division, real dedication, genuine fellowship, not just a marriage of uh, of convenience. I don't think this has happened in human history, uh, but it's happening now, 
Now, maybe it's happening because everyone is so, all the traditional faiths, people of all the traditional faiths are so embattled, maybe that's why it's happening. Right. But look, the Lord works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, and uh, he seems to be performing some wonders now with these uh, with these young people. Well, Dr. George, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Robert P. George of Princeton University, one of North America's leading Christian thinkers and an intellectual warrior for religious liberty. We hope you enjoyed uh, this conversation, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Now, if you want to listen to this interview or any of the other interviews that we've done recently, uh, feel free to go to thebridgehead.ca where we post all of our interviews and a lot of columns and articles as well, or you can find The Bridgehead on Facebook. Again, thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us next week, and have a great weekend.